So that means soon, especially going into 2024, we will endure months and months of candidates campaigning for our votes. You know, there, there's going to be promises made, there's going to be visions cast, and you, as a citizen of the U.S., you will listen, you will watch, and you may pick one or two that you, you know what, I can get with that guy. I like what he's saying. I like the vision that he's casting. And you may make a decision between those two people, or you may pick one, but when it comes to November of 2024, when we get to election day, they'll do everything. Millions of dollars will be spent to get you to show up and cast your vote. You'll go, maybe you're an early voter, or if you're like me, always show up the day of, and um, vote. My experience is I've never had to wait in a line when I voted on the same day, but I always hear these horror stories of like, you'll be late to work, you gotta show up, you gotta vote early. But people take it really seriously about, hey, cast your vote. Now, we do that, and then later in the evening, we all turn on our favorite news channel. The numbers are showing up on the screen, votes are being counted, and you wait with anticipation, who is going to win this election? Now, the winner of that, day, that night, whoever's announced, will have the title of President-Elect. President-Elect. Not until January 20th, on the inauguration, when that president is sworn in, does he or she take the full title of President of the United States. The inauguration day is an important one. Millions will watch on TV. You'll have very important people and special guests of honor show up and be seated to take in uh, really the ceremony. Speeches will be given. You may hear a special number of a song or hear uh, a patriotic song number be done. And then you see the swearing in. The president gives his address at his inauguration to kind of kick off what the next four years are going to look like. That's our experience when it comes to an inauguration service, an inauguration day in our history. Today in Mark 1, looking at verses 9 through 13, we're going to look at a different inauguration service. We're going to look at the inauguration service of Jesus, the servant king. And we will see the inauguration of Jesus with his baptism and temptation in the wilderness. A lot different than what we're used to here. My aim, we call this the big idea here for our sermon series, is that we will see that the inauguration of Jesus, the servant king, gives believers confidence in following him. Both to the readers in the immediate context and to us today, the inauguration of Jesus, the servant king, gives believers confidence in following him. And his sermon simply entitled, The Inauguration of Jesus. The Inauguration of Jesus. So let's look at verse 9, read together. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Let's pray. Lord, 
Thank you for the opportunity to come to your house and worship. This gift of grace of coming with other believers. To lift your name in praise and song. To gather around your word to learn more about you and what you expect of us. May your spirit have free reign this morning. Lord, I pray for the one that does not know you as Lord and Savior. That today be the day of salvation. May the spirit impress upon their heart their need for King Jesus. And Lord, I pray for the Spirit to work on those that know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, if encouragement is needed, I pray for that to be given. Conviction over sin, I pray their heart is convicted. Lord, I pray that we put distraction aside and we just take in this narrative account and just honor and glorify your name. Be with me right now. Give me clarity of mind and of speech as I preach your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So when we get to this inauguration service, first we're going to look at the, the ceremony, I'll call it, but we're in the ceremony, the baptism of Jesus. Hey, we're used to a bunch of pomp and circumstance, but here, it's going to start with the baptism. You know, verse 9 tells you that Jesus is traveling from Nazareth and Galilee, and he is baptized in the Jordan by John. Now Mark's account, when you look through the Gospel of Mark, unlike Matthew and Luke, you don't have a whole lot of details here. You don't get a lot of the conversation going back and forth. But strange is, is sometimes when you read this, you think to yourself, why does he have to be baptized? We saw last week, I mean, John's here and he's proclaiming a baptism of, hey, confess your sin and repent. Be right with God. Here with this symbol of your confession, I'm going to baptize you here in the Jordan. People are coming from Judea. And they're all coming up, and they're seeing John, this strange man, declare, you need to repent. Israel, you are not right with your God. Come, repent, confess, and be baptized. But Jesus, he has no sin. There is no sin to confess. Why must he be baptized? Even John himself in his interaction with Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, hold up. <laughs> if anything, let's switch roles. You get here, I'm going to... I get baptized from you. But Jesus makes a declaration that, hey, to fulfill all righteousness. This is something he has to do. So many may have that question when you first see this. Why does he get baptized? See, John's baptism was saying, hey, God's judgment is upon you, Israel. You have sinned. Confess your sin and repent right now. So there's a group of people that are listening. They're saying, what he is saying is right. Jesus, when he enters in, he's not coming from Judea like everybody else. He comes from a place of nowhere. He's coming from Nazareth and Galilee. As you read in the Old Testament, there's not much regard at all, sometimes even mocking when you read further in the Gospel accounts. This isn't somebody that's coming with the crowd. It's almost like a surprise guest here. And Jesus knows, hey, i got to take this baptism because what these people are looking for, I'm the answer to. Here, he identifies himself with the people that are seeking repentance. In submitting to John's baptism, Jesus acknowledges the judgment of God upon Israel. So he's acknowledging, he's giving credit to what John the Baptist is saying. But at the same time, his baptism signifies that his mission will be to endure the judgment of God. When you're studying this passage, we're going through the gospel accounts you're going to hear a phrase of, this is the beginning of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. 
Very strange terminology. We don't use much. Okay? We really can't see great humiliation at the cross when he's suffering and he dies. A gruesome and terrible death. But the humiliation begins here. This is the Son of God. You have God in the flesh now identifying with, hey, those that I'm about to pay for their sins. When you think of the Philippians, he came down, he humbled himself to take on the form of man. So now, this is 30-something odd years later from what we speak about the incarnation of him coming and Jesus being born. Start his public ministry with this. We look at it as him beginning to say, hey, I'm going to publicly identify with this group of people that have these sins that I'm here sent for them. So he faithfully submits to the Father's will and willingly identifies himself with, human, with sinful humanity. No, he does not need to. He has no sin. But we will find out. And Paul writes about it later in the church at Corinth. He who knew no sin will become sin, will take it on, on the cross, in order to pay for it for you and for me, to have a way to be all right before all holy God, because we need Jesus Christ to take that step. So this is the beginning, as he kicks off his ministry, that'll go about three years this is the first step. And then now he publicly comes and he is baptized. Because there's people here saying, you know what, there's something right. We need to repent. We need to seek what God says is correct because John's right, John the Baptist is right. God's judgment is upon us. But there's only one that can sufficiently take on the wrath of God and pardon us, and that is Jesus Christ. So he's baptized. The question, why? He did it as a step to show I am submitting to my Father's will and I'm kicking off this ministry that's going to end at the cross. But when you pick up the rest of the baptism, the declaration starting in verse 10, this is really amazing to think about. I grew up as a kid watching some uh, cartoon films with, uh, that showed like Bible stories. I'll never forget when it shows, you know, the baptism here. You get Jesus you know, he gets baptized, comes up, and you're going to see, ah, oh, big light, and you're going to see a dove coming down, and it's like his baptism. Like this imagery I'll never, ever get out of my mind. Why? Because my parents, hey, you guys watch cartoons? Kept throwing in that whole, the same VHS all the time. But here, this description, there's a lot more to it, almost an apocalyptic type of literature. Uh, there's something great and mighty about this declaration. Not simply is just Nice and beautiful, as we may have seen on felt board and cartoons before. Verse 10, as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. One commentator put it this way. When Jesus comes up from the water, he experiences three things that in Jewish tradition signify the inauguration of God's eschatological kingdom. What does that mean? God's future kingdom that's to come. When the Jewish people were looking forward so much that they thought they had with King David, and of course you see them go into captivity, and they have to rebuild everything. They're knowing that, hey, there's going to be a greater king coming. There's going to be, and they know the term, a Messiah to come. And in their own literature, these three things signify the Messiah coming and that this eschatological or future kingdom that's going to be coming in the future days is arriving. So the heavens were opened above him, the spirit descended into him, and the heavenly voice spoke to him. 
the concurrence or the happening of these momentous events at the baptism signals that Jesus, as John was talking about in verse 7, is the more powerful one that is to come. He is the one that is promised in the Old Testament, and he's bringing forth the kingdom. When you look at verse 14 next week, he begins, hey, the kingdom of God is, hey, repent. He is announcing it. This is the inauguration of that kingdom to come. So when we look at these three things that happen, the first one is that the heavens were torn open, being torn open. Mark uses torn open. Uh, when you go to Matthew and Luke's account, they use a, a different Greek word that would just be translated as open. Okay? So he uses the Greek word, a skizine. Skizine. You know, sounds like he just sneezed and everybody's like, are you okay? It's like, that word gives Mark, he uses that to say, tear open. Why, Mike? He wants to drop a whole lot of Jewish overtones to this Messiah that's coming, this king that is promised. Because it'll translate what we see in Isaiah and some other areas, the Hebrew word, kara. K, or you spell it Q-A-R-A, kara. That means to tear open. So the Greek word to be equivalent to the Hebrew to tear open is kazin. And he uses it here, he uses it on purpose because there's this promised servant of the Lord that's coming that we saw in Isaiah. And we see that when God really comes forward and does something like the parting of the Red Sea or the rock that was open to give water or talked about the prophecy of the Mount Olives being sp spread apart and split, Kara, there's a stronger term then they're used for when God comes and deals in our interacts. The Messiah has come. And we see this with Isaiah when he talks about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 64 verse 1. He says, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence. You see that he's talking about, hey, when that Messiah comes, this is what's going to happen. In the intertestamental period, this is the time between the last prophet and before Jesus arrives, we're talking a couple hundred years, even their own writings and teachings, when they saw Isaiah, they would teach each other about what's going to happen, and they would talk about the heavens are going to open. The heavens are going to open. It's a bigger cataclysmic type of deal when we know the Messiah is coming. And they also spoke of the Spirit coming upon whoever the Messiah was going to be, and they also talk about a declaration that he is the one to bring the kingdom. So we see this term, he's going to tear open the heavens. It happens. Jesus sees it. Why does Mark use that? He wants to bring a lot of that, hey, this is what's promised. What's also interesting is Mark will use that term one more time. One more time, and it comes toward the end. In Mark 15, crucifixion of Jesus Christ, starting verse 37, Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. That term of tearing open, as if God interacting with us here in our world, that tearing was used in the beginning at his baptism, and at last at his crucifixion. The supernatural occurrences, they point to, hey, this Jesus is the Son of God. So we even see, bookended for Mark, he opens with that term, and he closes it, especially when you see 
a centurion sees what Jesus is going through, the Spirit provokes him to say, hey, truly this man is the Son of God. Which is amazing to think about. But that first part, that means, hey, the Messiah is coming, this kingdom is coming, the heavens tore open. And the second sign was the Spirit descending on him. Like a dove, the Spirit descending. Remember the the second part that was for Jewish tradition to say, here comes the Messiah, was that spirit descending. In Isaiah 42.1, in the song about this servant of the Lord, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, says, This is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I have put my spirit, capital S, on him. He will bring justice to the nations. When you look at the prophecy or the songs of the servant of the Lord, uh, this is speaking of Jesus coming. But it's all going to come to a real big climax when we see Isaiah 53 about what's going to happen, what we're going to see at, toward the end of Mark, talking about the servant of the Lord and this spirit that's coming upon him. He's a fulfillment of this promise. It needed to take place because the spirit came to Jesus to equip him. So he is there. With Jesus, equipping Jesus for this ministry, this public ministry that's starting. Now, the Spirit did not make Jesus all of a sudden the Son of God. No, he is declared as the Son of God, but to show that he is the one that's going to carry out his Father's will, the Spirit descends upon him. Because when you read Mark, Mark is fast-paced, and you're going to see just like, come to one action, come to another action. Um, You're going to get this thing of, hey, Jesus is prepared to take on a lot of opposition. He's about to take on a whole lot, especially coming to the end when it comes to paying for your sin and for my sin. And the Spirit this time, God's saying, hey, you're submitting to me through baptism. The Spirit is descending on you. What I said before about who the Messiah is, the sign, the Holy Spirit comes upon him to equip him for his ministry. You know, John Piper put it best when you think about this time of him getting baptized and the Spirit descending. He says, when Jesus was baptized, along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastened his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped in the trench along with the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven, who had sent him for this very combat, signified with the appearance of a dove, that the Holy Spirit would be with him in the battles to come. This is a great thing. And this theme we're going to see about Jesus, and we keep learning about Jesus more and more. He is not this God that is cold and aloof, that does not care about you. He came into the trenches to fight for your soul and for my soul. He knows what he must do. And it's utter humiliating when you think he is part of the Trinity, God eternal from past to future, and he humbled himself and he's showing this as getting baptized, needing the Spirit to be with him. Because what he's about to take on is not an easy task. He's a God that loves you, that's in battle with you. That's great illustration here. He's got right in the trenches. He knows what his mission is going to be. He's with the people that said, I want this. And that's a great picture of what's happening here at the baptism. The Spirit coming down and equipping Jesus for this ministry. And we'll see the, the Spirit later in verse 12 go right into immediate action here. Before we get there, there is this declaration, the third part, this from God the Father, this voice that says, 
You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Heaven split open. Spirit descends. And then now, voice of God is saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. He is now submitting to carrying his father's will. For some reason, his father's will was to send his son for you and for me. I can't comprehend it. Because we didn't earn it. Can't comprehend it. Because there's nothing that's great about me that would say, redeem me. But it pleased the Lord to crush his son. So at this baptism, he is submitting to that. But this declaration that you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, is just filled with Old Testament imagery and echoes. When you see you are my son, you can go back to Psalm 2. And what was given to the declaration to the king of Israel says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. You can hear the echoes of that from what we see in Psalm 2 to what Jesus is saying, or what God is saying to Jesus, you are my son. He's declaring it there. In quoting this Davidic psalm, uh, the father announces, you are the Messiah king, the greater son of David, Hey, when we saw him too, we're talking about the son of David. That time we're thinking of these kings, that decree. But Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment that he is the Messiah king. He's the greater son of David. And he will be able to rule where others have failed and be successful when we need it most as our king. So he's declaring him, you are my son. Did he see that phrase, beloved? You are my beloved son. When you go back to how Abraham was interacting with Isaac, Abraham waited a long time to have a son, okay? God, to test Abraham's love for him, tells him in Genesis 22, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. This is where we get beloved, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. If you know the end of the story, there was a substitute caught in a thicket that was going to take the place of Isaac. But God is even pointing out to Abraham, your beloved son, your one and only, so unique, the one you waited for, the one I promised you. I want you to sacrifice him. God sending his only begotten, special, unique son, his beloved. But unlike Isaac, There's no substitute for Jesus on this sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate one-time, paid-for-all sacrifice for sin. And so you're just thinking, beloved, you're seeing it go all the way back to even Genesis 22. And then, with you, I am well pleased. In Isaiah 42, maybe you caught it, when he's saying, this is my servant, I strengthen him, this is my chosen one, and this is where we get, I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. So the Lord finishes in his declaration of who Jesus is, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He is pleased with the step his son is taking. This declaration is amazing. It can't just be overlooked. Like, all right, he says he's the son of God. You think about it. No prophets ever got a declaration like this. Abraham, he was known as a friend of God. Moses was a servant of God. Aaron was a chosen one of God. David, 
and he comes with a pretty cool title, was a man after God's own heart. But to be the son of God only happens twice in Scripture. When we go to Exodus, Israel was referred to as the son of God. And then we saw in Psalm 2, the king, the leader of Israel, was also called the son of God. But here Jesus, he is declared, you are the son of God. Now, Israel, all those, they're united in one in Jesus. All of it is in G- reduced to Jesus as one, you know, as Messiah and Son of God. With this declaration, with what he's going to do, he is the second Adam. He's the new Israel and a perfect king who will succeed where they each failed. And so he declares to him with this, you are the son, you are my beloved son. That title, Son of God, is huge. And it's only happened before when it talked about God's chosen people. But you know what? When you're tracing these promises, you know ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus. Israel's failed so much. You read the Old Testament, it is not a story that's going to leave you going, yeah! It's more like depression. These guys are terrible. Why not get a different team? But God's preserving his word that there's this promise from his chosen people. It's going to be ultimately filled in Jesus, and now it's being declared. The great inaugural address, with the heavens being opened, the Spirit descending, and you are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You know, all this together now enables Jesus to speak, to not just speak and act for God, but act as God in his earthly ministry. As you follow his ministry through Mark's gospel, you will see the deity of Jesus on full display. While he forgives sin, heals the sick, casts out demons, tells them, hey, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He raises the dead and ultimately raises himself from the dead. This declaration, coupled with what you'll see in his life, his ministry, his miracles, and his resurrection, make his deity undeniable. Now, the baptism signaled the confirmation of Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah that has come to save his people and is now anointed and equipped with God's Spirit to carry out his mission. That is what took place at the baptism. But as the narrative moves, the Spirit quickly takes Jesus into the wilderness. So we're going to move from the baptism of Jesus now to the temptation of Jesus. Look at verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. The strong language, almost like immediately, as the Spirit quickly, right after the baptism, we're taking you further into the wilderness. And now we see 40 days of him in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, being surrounded by wild animals, and the angels ministering to him or serving him. Why? Why? When we think of someone being announced for a new position, maybe at your workplace, every, everybody kind of gathers in the conference room, and somebody bought cake or cupcakes, and everybody's like, woohoo, good job in the promotion, way to go. Now, if it's really important, you'll probably have a huge ceremony, like we talk about an inauguration. We're going to celebrate this. All right, we might take a day. There's going to be a big gala at night. Jesus' inauguration, him announcing a declaration made, boom, goes into a more isolated, desolate, dangerous place of the wilderness for 40 days. 
kind of crazy to think about. Why put him in the wilderness? Why put him through temptation right now? It's because with the commissioning as the servant king, the Messiah that's going to save us, now before all this takes place, his ministry, comes the testing. Mark wants us to see the testing of this. Because with commissioning comes testing. In the Old Testament, we see the wilderness used by God as a proving ground. Moses, in Deuteronomy, writes, or he tells Israel about their 40 years in the wilderness. He says, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? So that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Moses, in Exodus, we see him when he's brought up to Mount Sinai. Moses was there, Exodus 34, with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat food or drink water. He wrote the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenants on the tablets. Even then, while waiting on the instruction of the law of God, he's in an isolated area. Everybody else is at the foot of this mountain. He's in isolation, and we see fasting 40 days, 40 nights. Elijah, on his journey to Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19, talks about Elijah. So he got up, he ate and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. God, for a reason, he decides, decides, hey, I want to put you through the wilderness as a testing, as a proving ground. And we see this, those contrasts with Jesus in each instance, this proving ground. It's a test of faithfulness and a promise of deliverance. And he's brought in for this testing. We know by the larger accounts given by Matthew and Luke that he's also fasting. Mark doesn't put that detail in. What is unique about Mark's account, he's the only one that says there are wild animals. Why does he put that in there? Some will believe he put it in because he knew his immediate audience were Christians in heavily persecution under Nero in Rome that used wild animals to kill and tear apart the bodies of Christians. We use that as a real big indicator of the time frame of when Mark's gospel was written. But you can think of the audience. They're going, Jesus was surrounded by wild animals? Man. But even greater, I think it, it tells us of the description of where he's at. He's not on a protected safari in the Jeep looking at wild animals. Okay? He's not in the zoo taking a look at animals. He's not in the garden, an area that's cultivated with a nice walking path as he meditates on truths. The Spirit pushes him out into a desolate wilderness. Some people think more of a desert area, and the idea of being surrounded by wild animals is there's danger here. He's probably the only human being that's in this area, especially for animals to really be able to surround you and come out. It's not like this is a place that's been civilized. So Mark uses that descriptor there. Now, this is important for the testing of Jesus as he's taken away from everything else if he's there. But accompanying, you know, the animals are accompanying who? Satan as he comes to tempt. Satan is tempting him. We, we see some of those 
different things he puts Jesus through in the other gospel accounts. But his goal is to say, hey, you don't need to suffer. You're hungry. Get here. You don't have to go through more and more. I'll give you a following. I'll give you a kingdom. But Jesus was called to suffer. What we see in Isaiah, as they're talking about the servant of the Lord, especially when it talks about him suffering and taking upon our sin, suffering is a heavy theme here. So even while suffering there for 40 days with hunger, Satan is just saying, hey, I got to tempt him to see if he's, he can move away. You don't have to suffer. I'll give you good things. Because Satan knows that if Jesus submits and he is faithful to what his father's will is, that suffering is going to lead to the ultimate part of the suffering we're going to see here when he takes on the wrath of God. And by doing that as the son of God, the perfect lamb, he redeems your soul and my soul. And Satan knows, I lose. So I'm coming at him fast and quick. Hey, you know what? Come on. You don't got to suffer. Let's work this out because Satan understands what's been promised for. That there's going to be, he's the redeemer that is sent. And so probably witnessing what's happened at the baptism, that's the temptation. But Mark's account is, is still really unique. It, it, it is short. It, it is like, this is what happened. It's not longer, as long as the other ones. Maybe when teaching from Matthew or Luke, there's a secondary teaching of how Jesus resists the temptation. This is not Mark's point here. He doesn't want to teach you a pattern that we could follow. Because here's the difference. When you and I face temptation, we're on the defensive. We have either wandered somewhere we're not, or we're being caught by something that we're not really well prepared for. So when we see temptation, I'm on the defensive. You're on the defensive. Jesus, prompted by the Spirit, no, no, he goes on the offensive. He's immediately in Satan's territory. Satan's coming. There is an offensive part here. The Spirit says, you're going. You have Jesus, the Son of God, that's going to face the adversary of God, Satan. You know, Piper's illustration of there of getting ready for a battle, of you talk about the commander-in-chief coming down and saying, I'm going to war for you. That is what's happening right here. He is commissioned into war at his baptism, and there's that immediate action and that going up against Satan. But Mark does not go in detail like the other accounts, and tells you his victory of how he won. It's more of assumed. You just go into verse 14 that says, all right, now we're into Galilee, and he's beginning his ministry. Why does he do this? I believe Mark wants you to pick up this tone that it's war. That there's a spiritual warfare going on, and it starts now. Jesus is facing it, starting at this moment throughout his ministries. He'll face temptation. He'll face demonic forces when it comes to winning the war for your soul and for my soul. Remember, 1 John 3, it says, hey, the Son of God, he was revealed for this purpose. What? To destroy the devil's works. Hey, he didn't want to spend time, Mark didn't want to spend time giving you victory. He's more like, you're in a boxing match, he's going, ding, ding, round one of 15 just went. He's saying, it is battle royale, we're going. Jesus is going on the offensive to win your soul and win my soul. And he just showed us round one. And then he picks up that theme and it continues to go on. So that's what's unique about seeing it from Mark's lens. Seeing it from his perspective. He just tells you, this is what happened. It doesn't give much more, but it does set a tone when you read the rest of Mark. 
that Jesus is going to battle for you and for me. Christian, when we look at the baptism of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness, let's not miss its significance. The Son of God, the second Adam, the better Israel has arrived. It is announced by God. Remember, in the garden, the garden of Eden, Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve. Adam failed. Fall of man. Now we have Jesus going into the wilderness. Satan coming to tempt him. And this second Adam, the better Adam, does not fail. He, has, he holds victorious, thus we have the hope of salvation. He's the second Adam. The one better than we saw in the beginning has come. Israel, like Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy, but what we see in Israel, when they were led through the, to the wilderness and through it, and as the chosen people of God, they failed oh so many times. Jesus is thrusted into the wilderness. He is going through hardship. He is being tempted just like the people of Israel were. But as the better Israel, the better representation, he does not fail. He remains faithful to his father's will. He trusts and obeys what God has planned for him. He is a better Israel. When we go back to the, the first Adam, at the fall of man, we have the announcement of what was to come that's happening right now. Genesis 3.15. God does not leave Adam and Eve hopeless. He says, hey, speaking to Satan, he goes, I'll put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. Now he's talking about Jesus here. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. It paints a picture that when the Messiah comes and the adversary of God known as Satan, it is going a back and forth. There is not going to be just a robotic, clean, wipe it, whatever. Jesus is going to war for souls. And Satan does not want him to succeed, ultimately, by him being the payment for our salvation. So this is amazing to think. I told you, Israel, you know, you, you try it from Genesis 3. We have this promised seed. You get a chosen people coming from Abraham. Then you have this just up and down like crazy of them failing. Then they get exiled into captivity. They're no longer even a people group, a nation. And if you're reading in real time, watching it as if it was a TV episode, you're going, oh, there's a promise with these guys, but I think they're about to get annihilated. But God, even though the chosen people Israel failed him so much, because of who he is, and he is faithful to his own promise, no matter how terrible and undeserving the people are, is going to preserve that seed. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And we look and we see this all pointing to him. And it's amazing to think about King Jesus. Announced at his baptism. Proving it through his temptation. You know, I said earlier that the inauguration of Jesus, the servant king, it gives believers confidence to follow him. So at his inauguration, seeing this, it'll give believers confidence. Just how so, Mike? Look at the immediate context of those that are in Rome reading about this Jesus that is the Son of God, that's going to be coming as the Messiah that gave them oh so much. Being reminded of that gives them confidence. And then, as they suffered, they read about his suffering. We're reminded of Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. You mentioned the comfort they have. This is why it's so unique that Mark mentions wild beasts. And we see that context of what happens to Roman Christians. 
Maybe you're like them today and you're in a spot of suffering. God is not one that's cold and aloof. Your Savior is not one that has no interaction with you and just left you be. He sent you what he calls the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But he lived his humanity, 100% God, 100% man. He lived on this earth and experienced life. So the writer of Hebrews can say he sympathizes with you. But you know what? Sympathy can only get you so far. You know, someone can sympathize. What makes Jesus greater, the great high priest, is he was tempted. He went through what you and I have gone through, but yet without sin. Him, being God in the flesh, without sin, makes the gospel possible. Because if he was with sin, he's not going to be the sacrifice that would satisfy the wrath of God or the penalty for sin. So he gives you a greater hope and a greater ability than just sympathizing. He'll give you the ability, while in this time of suffering, to endure, to honor him, to even help others, when it may not even seem possible. Why? Because the great high priest sent the Spirit to you and gives you the ability. So you don't just have somebody that's writing you a sympathy card, but you've got somebody that's also giving you an ability that's beyond comprehension to do things that still honor him, help others, and give glory to his name. That is the confidence those in Rome needed, and that is the confidence we have when we remember who this Jesus is and what his ministry was all about. So when you go back to the inauguration, you know, on January 20th, 2025, the next president's going to be inaugurated. Some will be overjoyed. It feels like the other half will be so disappointed. No matter what, that next leader of this country, here's what's going to happen. He will break a promise. He or she will face opposition that will derail the vision he originally casted. And the next leader of this country will make decisions that will disappoint us. But here in Mark, we have an inauguration day of a king that will keep his promises, that will overcome his opposition, and will never disappoint. I tell you, all hail King Jesus. Jesus.